0: issue of the church in the Old Testament is my next sermon from here. That's why I mentioned the Ecclesia in the Old Testament in the Septuagint. Fascinating study. Our call to worship this morning, as we continue in God's garden with the prophets in the garden, our call to worship is from Psalm 137. God calls us to worship. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. And Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's sing a hymn of praise, hymn number 20. Our scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 51. I'll read the first eight verses of this chapter. Isaiah 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one, and I blessed him and made him many. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden. Her wastelands like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and set in the sound of seeing. Listen to me, my people, hear me, my nation. The law will go out from me, my justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily, my salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. Hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have my law in your hearts. Do not fear the reproach of men or be terrified by their insults, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, the worm will devour them like wool but my righteousness will last forever, my salvation through all generations. Amen. Bo, can you lead us in prayer? Well, today we move in on in our series about God's garden to look at the prophets and the garden. Before we dive into the prophets, I'd like to go back a little bit and get our bearings here on the big, the big story, the big themes that we've covered so far in the garden series. I hope you've seen these recurring patterns as we've looked through Genesis and into Exodus and in other parts of Scripture that are related to this garden theme, the gospel of Jesus Christ begins in the Garden of Eden. That's really how we began this. Adam was made purely by God's grace to live by faith in God's word unto obedience. That's the very first place that we find the principles of the gospels laid down for us in our scriptures, in the very first chapters of Genesis. And that explains why Jesus relied on Genesis 2 in his teaching on marriage and divorce. Paul actually went back to Genesis 2 as well and he called marriage a great mystery of Christ and his church. And so we have all these things being laid down in Genesis 2. For example, Paul quotes Genesis 2. and He says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. That is the mystery of Christ and the church, the bride and the bridegroom, the marriage, salvation, covenant union, and communion. And so what we understand here when you look at the New Testament in that context is that Paul and Jesus and all the rest of the New Testament are using these early chapters of Genesis as gospel teaching. And that has great implications for how we look at the early chapters of Genesis. They are gospel. Now as we work through Genesis, we saw that the patriarchs each had their own garden just like Adam and Eve had their garden. We saw how each of them, as blessed as they were to live in covenant with God, they still fell one by one, just as Adam and Eve fell in their garden. We saw Noah, who planted his vineyard and became drunk with wine and became uncovered in his tent, naked again. We saw, for example, Abraham, who didn't trust in God's word, God's promise, but actually chose that he would decide what was right and wrong and married Hagar. We saw the fall of Abraham. Um, we didn't dwell on this, but Jacob had his own troubles as well. And this pattern of the garden situation continues through the book of Genesis with all these patriarchs until we get to the end. Until so we get to one man who faced his temptation, Potiphar, who offered herself to Joseph, and Joseph turned down the temptation And succeeded in his trial. And as a result, God raised him to the right hand of Pharaoh. And through the work of Joseph, the one who did stand up to uh, the temptation that he was faced with, through the work of Joseph, he saved all of his brothers and the rest of the world as well. And so we see in Genesis this pattern of a consummation, of a beginning of a story and a consummation at the end of Genesis. And of course, Joseph is very typological of Jesus Christ in that. And, of course, then we start the whole story over again with the children of Israel in a garden in Goshen. And then we have this new story with Exodus, which is really building on the old story, where you have the nation of Israel being brought out of bondage back to the promised land that was promised to Abraham. We saw how the promised land is really a kind of garden that God was going to place his people into. And so we start seeing these themes working out again, just like Adam was, was created in the wilderness, and then planted in the garden. You know, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and then he was planted in the garden. We see the same thing happening with Israel, God's people, because Israel was taken into the wilderness out of Egypt. They were taken to Sinai, and God's breath, God's word was given to them at Sinai. They were made a nation at Sinai. We see that later in Isaiah chapter 51. And then they were taken and planted in the land, in the garden. And they were planted in the land by grace, by God's grace. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to live by faith in God's word unto obedience. And so we have this story unfolding and that Moses brings the children of Israel out of Egypt. Joshua, Joshua leads the people to conquer the promised land. David sets up God's kingdom in Jerusalem, the city of peace. And all of this stuff is this unfolding of this story of Israel in the land, which is really Israel in the garden. We saw how the law pictured that in various different ways, with the types of the law. You had the lampstand in the temples, for example, in the temple that was actually sort of a type of um, a tree of life with blossoms and things like that. We saw the, the, the precious stones on the ephod of the high priest, like the precious stones back in the garden with Israel's names, the names of the 12 sons of Israel inscribed on those stones. We saw that the high priest wore linen clothes so he didn't sweat. All of these things are memories back to the situation in the Garden of Eden. So all the law is Edenic. All, of the, all of the worship system is Edenic because the entire land is Edenic. It is God's land, God's garden. And Israel was going to live in it and to, to enjoy God's presence, just like Adam and Eve was to enjoy the God's presence in the original garden. By now, though, if you start thinking about the story you should be thinking, uh uh-oh, because what happens next in the story? What happens after they were placed in the land to live by faith in God's word and to obey the covenant? If we think about these things as parallel stories, we should understand what's going to happen next in Israel's history because we know what happened to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned next in the garden. They sinned and broke God's command. And so the very same thing happens with the nation of Israel after they were given the promised land. They sinned and broke God's covenant. And here we begin our look at the prophets and the garden because the prophets were sent by God in order to deliver God's message to the people. Now, you guys realize what the difference between a prophet and a priest is, right? A priest is somebody who represents the people to God and a prophet is someone who represents God to the people. Okay? And so now we have this time in Israel's history where the nation breaks the covenant, breaks the command, just like Adam did. And so God has this message to Israel that this law has been broken. And so Israel began to disobey the covenant. And we see these themes actually in the prophets. They start bringing us back to the garden. Look at Hosea, uh, Hosea chapter 6. I've actually referenced this passage before, but I'll look at a, a little more of Hosea today as well. Hosea, chapter 6, in the Minor Prophets, beginning in verse 4. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. There is no more love for God. That's what the prophet is saying. The people that were made to love God and to enjoy Him, to be His wife, has no more love. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flash like lightning upon you, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. And then the prophet's going to explain how. In verse 8, Gilead is a city of wicked men stained with footprints of blood as marauders lie in ambush for a man, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, committing shameful crimes I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. Their Ephraim is given to prostitution and Israel is defiled. Also for you, Judah, a harvest is appointed. We see this theme continuing in in chapter 8. The prophet pronounces God's judgment just like what we see in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. God came, chapter 8, verse 1, put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. You see it also in Hosea chapter 9, verse 1. Do not rejoice, O Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations. For you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people. The new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat the unclean food in Assyria. They're going to get kicked out. That's the message of the prophets. And of course, that's exactly what we see with Adam and Eve. They were kicked out of the Lord's garden. They were going to be sent back into the wilderness from which they came. Isaiah gives more insight into this. Isaiah chapter 43. We have another pronouncement of God's judgment for breaking the covenant. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 16 through 28. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Something about the Red Sea crossing and the destruction of the the armies of Egypt. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. You do not perceive it. I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. And here's the charge. Here's the charge that the prophet lays. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Yet you have not called upon me, O Jacob. You have not wearied yourself for me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not bought any fragrant calamus for me, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins, and wearied me with your offenses. I, even I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let us Argue the matter together. State your case for innocence. Your first father sinned. Who was Israel's first father? Adam. Your spokesman rebelled against me. Speaking of the wilderness rebellion. So I will disgrace the dignitaries of your temple. I will consign Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. But that's only one side of the prophet. The pronouncement of God's judgment was coming. Israel was going to be kicked out of the land. But That's only one side of the prophets because but God's message of of coming judgment is not without hope and promise. Do you remember the promise that God made to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 when he pronounced his curse? He not only pronounced the curse, he also gave a promise about the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman to come was going to crush the head of the serpent. So, even back in the Garden of Eden, we see both this blessing and promise that comes with the curse, right? Genesis 3.15 and 16, the first pronouncement of the gospel that we have in the Bible, what we see fulfilled with Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, we have the same pattern in the prophets. They're also going to promise that there is going to come a time when God would forgive Israel's sins almost in the very same breath that they make these condemnations upon Israel for breaking the covenant, the prophets speak of God's deliverance to come. And turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, 27, 34. We'll see how this works as well because there's always two sides of the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 27 through 34. And pay attention to the garden imagery here and the, and the idea that God is the gardener. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and animals. Don't take that literally. This is, this is prophecy. Prophecy is always symbolic. Jeremiah 31, verse 27. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant. Think garden. I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and animals. So when you see men and animals symbolically, you should think Jews and Gentiles because Jeremiah 31 is very important in the New Testament. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, to destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. What was Israel's problem? Being kicked out of God's garden in the land. Sin. Sin was their problem. They had multiplied sin. And so the prophet looks forward to this redemption in terms of the forgiveness of sin. That's how the prophets talked about the garden. So what happened to Israel, God's garden? The very same thing that happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed, they were kicked out of the garden. When Israel disobeyed and broke God's covenant, they were kicked out of the land. In 722 B.C., Assyria attacked and defeated the northern kingdom, what we call the Ten Tribes. They killed men, women, and children. There was no one left in, the land. in fact, what Assyria did, this is their common way of approaching things, is they would take people from other parts of that world and plant them into new parts of land and take people from their conquered lands and plant them somewhere else. And so you'd have this ethnic mixing in which the entire culture was destroyed. And that happened in 722 B.C. to the Northern Kingdom. God ordained it. Actually, you see this in the New Testament. The the effects of this are still present in the New Testament with the Samaritans. Why did the Jews detest Samaritans in the New Testament? It's because of what happened with Assyria. They had brought foreign people to the land of Israel, to God's promised land, and then left some remnants in the land and they mixed. And the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were not pure people of God. And so the northern kingdom actually technically ceased to exist as God's people in 722 B.C. That left only Judah at the time. And the, and the Assyrians actually did lay siege to Jerusalem, but God was gracious to Judah. And the Assyrians went home defeated. But that left only Judah, the southern kingdom, in the land. But in 586 B.C., just a hundred and something years later, the Babylonians came and attacked Judah. And God gave Judah into their hands And the Babylonians destroyed the temple, plundered the nations, again, killed men, women, and children, dashed infants against the rocks. The ruthless people Babylonians, you see how the prophets refer to Babylonia. They carried all the nobles of Judah into captivity back to Babylon. And so now you start reading about the prophets' response to what God did to both Israel and Judah in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is right after the book of Jeremiah. Commonly, Lamentations is attributed to the prophet Jeremiah, written after the conquest of Judah by Babylon. Lamentations chapter 2. And notice how the garden theme still plays in this. Lamentations chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. So understand the history here, what just happened. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. Two kingdoms mentioned there. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In his fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. And the image there is that when God's people were faithful, God put his arms around them so that they could never be touched. But now, because they were unfaithful, God withdraws his arm and they are vulnerable. He is burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow, his right hand is ready. And that imagery actually goes back to the flood. Because in the flood story, what happens after God's judgment God unstrings his bow and places his bow, what we call the rainbow, in a cloud as a sign of peace. Because of what? Why did why God place the bow, his weapon, in the cloud? Because Noah's sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to him. We see the, the pictures of Jesus Christ and that pleasing sacrifice, which brings peace. But here we have this, like an enemy he has strung his bow, his right hand is ready, like a foe he has slain all who were pleasing to the eye, he has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of the daughter of Zion, the Lord is like an enemy, he has swallowed up Israel, he has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds and has multiplied mourning and lamentation for the daughter of Judah. And here's where he says the garden, he has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed the place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed feast and her Sabbath. In its fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. And that's why we read Psalm 137 this morning about this lament of Israel in Babylon, kicked out of the garden, separated from God's presence, just like Adam and Eve were separated from God's presence when they were kicked out of the garden. And now you can understand why Psalm 137 talks about dashing the infants against the rocks of the Babylonians because that's what they had done to God's people. And so the Babylonians were not unresponsible for what, what they did with, with Jerusalem and Edomites, particularly with the, the descendants of Esau. But yet, God ordained that to take place following the garden theme that we see in the early chapters of Genesis. But now how is Israel going to get back into that garden if sin was what led to them getting kicked out, how are they going to get back into the garden? Well, that's what the prophets talk about. That's the central concern of the prophets in the exile. Only through God's promise to redeem Israel, to take away their sin and shame, would they ever be able to return to the land, the true land of promise, the land of rest, the land of salvation, God's garden. And this is really the central theme of Daniel, for example. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9 because I think a lot of people don't read the context. It's a very famous uh, passage in Daniel chapter 9. A lot of people don't read the context of what Daniel is actually doing. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Remember, Daniel is in Babylon now. He's been there for a while. He witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem and Judea as a young man. He was one of the nobles taken away into captivity. Daniel 9 chapter 20. Daniel writes, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for His holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, what was he praying for? His sin and the sin of his people. An answer was given which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy sevens, or it might be weeks, are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand this. You see how the point there is removal of sin? That's what Daniel's prophecy is about. That's, that was the problem that Israel had and that was the promise that they looked forward to, the removal of sin. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that would be Cyrus's decree, because Israel went back into the land, by God's grace, until the anointed one, Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. If you read Nehemiah, you see what that, what that means. It was a very difficult thing. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. And now we're looking at New Testament times. Because that's what happened to Jesus. The anointed one, the Messiah, was cut off and had nothing. The people of the ruler who will come... I believe that's talking about Rome, will destroy the city and the sanctuary, which we know happened in AD 70. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. That was the end that the prophet looked forward to. The final forgiveness of sins for Israel. It's all about the New Testament times. It's all about the first century. And so the next time we'll actually look at the, the Messiah and the garden in our next, next sermon and how the Messiah comes to save Israel. But set a con- to set a context and give you a little foretaste of how this works, of where the story goes from here in Israel's history, we need to look at an, a seemingly obscure part of the prophets. Ezekiel chapter 31. And this is fairly long, but I think that it's, it says volumes about what we're reading about with the message of Jesus Christ. When Jesus goes and does things in the New Testament, we read the New Testament. A lot of times we don't realize He's doing stuff from the Old Testament. And this is the way we can find out how that works. Ezekiel chapter 31. In the eleventh year, in the third month of the first day, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, who can be compared with you in majesty? Consider Assyria, once a cedar in Lebanon. Now notice what the prophet just did. The prophet just associated a nation with a tree. Okay? The tree is symbolic of a nation. Consider Assyria, once a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches overshadowing the forest. It towered high, its top above the thick foliage. The waters nourished it. Deep springs made it grow tall. Their streams flowed all around its base and sent their channels to all the trees of the field. Remember back in the garden, the streams flowed to all the trees. All this is Edenic. So it towered higher than all the trees of the field. Its bows increased and its branches grew long, spreading out because of abundant waters. All the birds of the air nested in its boughs. All the beasts of the field gave birth under its branches. All the great nations lived in its shade. It was majestic in beauty with its spreading boughs for its roots went down to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it. Now, if we know that trees are symbolic of nations, what do you think the prophet is talking about there? And we know that Assyria devastated the northern tribes, right? I would take the cedars in the garden of God as being referenced to the twelve tribes, the twelve nations of Israel in the garden of God in the promised land. Nor could the pine trees equal its boughs, nor could the plain trees compare with its branches. No tree in the garden of God could match its beauty. I made it beautiful with abundant branches, the envy of all the trees of Eden in the garden of God. The prophet is comparing Assyria to the trees of the garden of God. Verse 10, Therefore this is what the sovereign Lord says, because it towered on high, lifting its top above the thick foliage, and because it was proud of its height. I handed it over to the ruler of nations for him to deal with it according to its wickedness. I cast it aside and the most ruthless of foreign nations cut it down and left it. Its boughs fell on the mountains and in all the valleys. Its branches lay broken in all the ravines of the land. All the nations of the earth came out from under its shade and left it. All the birds of the air settled on the fallen tree and all the beasts of the field were among its branches. Therefore, no other trees by the waters are ever to tower proudly on high, lifting their tops above the thick foliage. He's talking about a warning to the nation. No other trees so well watered are ever to reach such a height. They are all destined for death, for the earth below among mortal men with those who go down to the pit. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day it was brought down to the grave, I covered the deep springs with mourning for it. I held back its streams and its abundant waters were restrained. Because of it, I clothed Lebanon with gloom and all the trees of the field withered away, I made the nations tremble at the sound of its fall, when I brought it down to the grave with those who go down to the pit. Then all the trees of Eden, the choicest and best of Lebanon, all the trees that were well-watered, were consoled in the earth below. When Assyria fell, all the nations were happy. That's what the prophet was saying. Verse 18. Which of the trees of Eden can be compared with you in splendor and majesty? Yet you too will be brought down with the trees of Eden to the earth below. You will lie among the uncircumcised with those killed by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his hordes, declares the sovereign Lord. Note how Egypt and Assyria, great kingdoms in the ancient world, were compared to trees. They were compared to the trees of Eden. and We don't think of Eden as being, during the time of Assyria, and Babylon and Egypt and all these different nations. We think of Eden just back there in Genesis. No, no, no. Eden was there. It was the promised land. Assyria, the nation that God ordained to destroy Israel, was a beautiful tree and God made it beautiful. But what happened to Assyria? Assyria became arrogant and puffed up and became wicked and God cut the tree down until it fell with a crash to the earth. Now remember this and turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. See if this looks familiar. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31 and 32. Speaking of Jesus, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Does that look familiar to you? What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about God's garden. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Who's the gardener? How has God first communicated to us? As a gardener, planting trees. Back in Genesis. You should be thinking God's garden when you talk about a man planting something in his field. God is the one who plants in the land. God is planting a new kingdom on earth in his garden through Jesus Christ. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of all garden plants. Abraham was one, small, the father of a nation, Abraham. He became many. We see the same thing in the New Testament. The Christian faith was small, Jesus and his 12 disciples. And yet when it grows, it is the largest of all garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch on its branches. We have a lot of things coming together here with Jesus and I believe Jesus is drawing off of Jeremiah chapter 31 and making the association here just as Assyria was great as a human nation so the kingdom of God would be the full great nation of which Israel longed to be. The kingdom of heaven which Jesus brought to earth with him is like a garden tree. So then the kingdom grows and we read about the New Testament as the gospel goes out through the Roman Empire, through the efforts of Paul and the other ministers. It began to grow and then what happened? Israel, the nation Israel, Judah, Judea, and Jerusalem was destroyed in 8070 and yet the kingdom that Jesus brought continues to grow and get bigger. The kingdom of God kept growing and what happened when God brought an end to the Roman Empire? This kingdom kept growing. And growing, and we see now the the effects of all this growing over thousands of years as nations rise and nations fall. The kingdom of God is the greatest of all trees in God's garden so that the birds rest in the shade of its branches. But the kingdom of God is a garden tree, like a mustard seed, and yet the greatest of all garden plants. And that means that those who live in the kingdom of God, all those of us who make up this great tree this great nation, live in God's garden today. And doesn't that make sense? Notice here that Jesus is talking about the kingdom in the garden, in God's garden. And doesn't that make sense? Because Jesus came to earth, lived and died to redeem his people from their sins. Jesus brought Israel, all the children of Abraham who lived by the faith of Abraham back into God's garden. And so we see with this little tiny parable, in the context of the prophet, in the context of the history of Israel, shows that now we in God's kingdom have been returned to God's garden. So how do you look at your life in this world? How do you look at your life in this world in the kingdom of God? Does that make a difference to the way you approach life? Do you approach life as if you're trying to escape life? This is just a bad place, a wilderness to escape from? Or do you approach life as if it's God's garden God's pruning yes God's disciplining yes no discipline is pleasant at the time but God is working in his garden God is planting building up destroying but this is a garden now that God has taken you from the wilderness and planted you in his good land of promise how important is it to live an obedient life following the example of Jesus Christ the last Adam those who have been made by grace who live by faith in God's word and those who obey will experience all the blessings in life God is designed to give his friend whom he created in his garden to enjoy him and love him forever. Kingdom life is garden life. Amen. Let's pray.